Thank you, Greg, and those that serve with you, and those that take up the offering. We appreciate you each and every single Sunday. Hope you have a Bible with you this morning. If you do, I invite for you to open it up to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15. I want to echo my previous appreciation for you being here this morning. Um, I hope that when you came in, you got a bulletin on the back of that. There will be some uh, notes if you want to follow along as we study God's Word together. But this morning, we are, we are going to pick up in Exodus 15, where we have been walking through God's Word together. Specifically, the last two times we're in the book of Exodus, we are looking at the crossing of the Red Sea out of Exodus chapter 14. And if you remember back to the two Sundays ago when we were in the book of Exodus, the uh, people of God, the Israelites, they leave out of Egypt, they leave out of the bondage. God brings them through the wilderness up to the Red Sea and they, God has them camp where their back is to the Red Sea and they're facing the desert. And about that time, Pharaoh and all of his soldiers and all of his army and all of the other leaders said, hey, what are we doing? We shouldn't have let them go. So they start to chase after them to bring them back into Captivity, And so a couple of times ago, we were sitting there, and you, and you read in the text where the Israelites look up their eyes, and they see Pharaoh coming. They see them, they're back against the wall, and they start to panic. And we talked about how worry and anxiety will often hinder our faith in God. And then the last time, we were in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 14, we see where the people are crying to Moses. Moses is crying to God, and God looks to Moses and looks and by extension to the people and says, Stop whining, spread out your hands, spark the Red Sea, go across, I will deliver you. And we see out of last Sunday how God shows his glory and how God brings his glory when we seem to be in the biggest tight spot of our lives or in the biggest pickle or the biggest problem or the biggest obstacle or the biggest moment of worry or anxiety in our, in our lives, how God has an opportunity then to show us his glory and to bring us through in a way that we could never imagine and we could never have ever predicted. So you can get to Exodus chapter 15. And if you look down there in verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. So as the story progresses, now they are on the other side of the Red Sea. God has miraculously, supernaturally brought them across the Red Sea. As they were getting to the other side, there goes all of Pharaoh's armies, his chariots, his horsemen, everything. They take off down into the same path that the Israelites had taken, and yet this time, God says, close your hands back, the water comes back, they all drown, they are annihilated. So if you're, an Egypt, or if you're an Israelite, you are sitting there on this side of the water, realizing what God has done, the deliverance that God has brought upon your life. And I think to be excited would be an understatement. So they pick it up there in verse 1 of chapter 15, and this is what Moses does. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And the remaining portion of that goes all the way down through verse 18. It's like the people sing, God is awesome, God is great. Oh, we can't ever imagine ever serving or being devoted to a different God than this God. You ever find yourself in that moment? One minute you feel like it can't get any worse, and the next minute you feel like it can't get any better. 
One minute you're like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how this is going to work. And then it seemed like in just a matter of seconds, you're like, oh, yeah, I knew this was all going to happen. I knew this was all going to take place. I never doubted for a minute. Or, you know, sometimes you get to a sports, uh, a sports game and all of a sudden the, the, your, your favorable team, it's down. And you feel like there's no hope, there's no help. Then all of a sudden the Hail Mary pass or the, or the miracle home run or whatever it may be. And you're like, oh, I never doubted for a minute. I never thought, I never had any second doubts. And that's where you find the people at in this scenario. They're so happy, they're so elated, and they're just praising God, and they're just so excited about who God is. And then look at verse 22. And Exodus 15, verse 22 through 27 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. In fact, the majority of our time we're actually going to spend in verse 24 down through verse 26. But I want us to see this next chapter in the narration that Moses gives us about the life of the people of Israel. If you follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read out of mine, verse 22 of Exodus 15, this is what the Bible says. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, crying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they had camped there by the water. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. If you were to stop reading the story about the people of Israel on their on their journey from Egypt to the promised land, and you stop short there in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 21, you might think that everything is good. God had delivered them through the Red Sea. God had brought them to the other side. They were excited about it. They gave all glory to God. They all gave all praise to God. And every, everything is going to end happily ever after. But then when you enter into verse 22, it shows us that Moses then took the people and said, all right, we are going to travel to a southeasterly direction, and we're headed down to Mount Sinai. You know that later on in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20, God is going to bring them around Mount Sinai. He's going to give them the law. So as they take off, you have 600,000 men on foot, not including the women, not including the children, not including the livestock. So you have a great number of people in one migration, and they take off. And it says there in the text, they go three days' journey, and they find no water. Now, I don't blame them for being in a moment of a little bit of panic or a little bit of concern. Have you heard the threes, the rule of threes before? The rule of threes goes that when it comes to survival, that a person, a normal person, the average person, they can survive three minutes without oxygen. In the most harshest weather conditions, they can survive three hours without shelter. It says that you can survive three days without water. And three weeks without 
food. Now, I haven't tested any of those out before, so I'm just going to take their assumption on it that what they say probably has some relevancy. So when it comes to this idea, the Bible tells us it's been three days, they don't have any water, and they're getting a little bit anxious. It's not one of those things that you and I look back and go, well, just get over yourself. No, we understand that this is a problem. And please do not misunderstand me. I am not trying to minimize any of the problems that we face in life. The challenge is when we face a problem, what do we do? My suggestion to you this morning is that many times in our Christian life, we turn to fret. Now use the word fret because it's a word that doesn't get used a lot, but I think is very, very on point to where we find ourselves in our society. The word fret means to feel or express worry. Somebody that has an annoyance or a discontentment or something like that. It's the idea that you and I get into a moment of life. We don't have the answers. We don't know the future. We don't know what is going to take place. We're unsure about what's going to happen next. And instead of you and I just going, you know what? We can just chill out because we know God has this We do not do that. We start to fret. We start to get worrisome. We start to get anxious. We start to doubt. We start to question. All of these things can be encapsulated in one idea of fret. But as we are going to see, hopefully this morning, when God comes in, God says, listen, and I just summarize this. This is my paraphrase. You cannot live by faith, but operate by fret. So here in verse 22 down through verse 24, you see the people. They come and they get tomorrow. The water is bitter. They can't drink it. They grumble. Some of your translation may say murmur. They murmur to Moses and say, Moses, what are we going to do? Moses finds the log. He throws it in the water. The water becomes sweet. They get a drink. But God says, no, 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 no. Let's use this as a moment to teach a lesson. And here in verse 24 and 26, 24 through 26, God gives them a lesson about faith. That's what we're going to drill on, drill into during our time together, the rest of our time together this morning. So you get down there, and some of your Bibles may make it in a different paragraph. Some of your Bibles may section it out. But the last part of verse 25, all the way down into verse 26, you see where God gives them. You have the one bookend of them being at Marah and not having any water. And then you get to verse 27, and now they're Elam where they have all the water they can handle. But right in between, not... Having water at Mara and having water at Elam, God teaches them about faith. This morning, I want you to see with me the steps that God gives on how we develop a faith so that you and I might live by faith and not by fret. So notice there in the text. Notice there at the text in verse 25 what God says. It says, There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying. And there's eight words that I want to give you, not Eight words that I want to give you. There's going to be three phrases and eight words that I want you to see how God establishes this pattern of faith. The first one you see in verse 26, saying, if you will. Those are the first three words I want you to think about that God tells them when it comes to this step of faith. There is a if you will statement. And God says, if you will, and then he's going to follow it up on the, another, on the next two steps of faith. But think about how he frames this. God is looking at his people, and he is saying, if you want to have faith in me, if you want to have the kind of faith that doesn't fret, if you want to have the kind of faith that doesn't just immediately go to worry and anxiety, you want to have the kind of faith in me that follows me, trusts me, and, 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 and does not lose their mind as soon as problems arise, the first step is, if you will. 
I don't know, in your copy of God's Word, in mine, I don't mind putting ink to the paper, and so I circle it. You might underline it. You might highlight it. You might do something else that God is giving us the step. If you will. And then he follows it with four action steps. You see that? Four action steps. If you will, diligently listen to the voice of the Lord. In other words, I put there in your notes, if you will, listen to God. Oh, there are so many things in this world that are clamoring for our ears. They are clamoring for our minds. A guy up in Claremore talks about how the enemy is always on the attack for the domination through the eyes and the ears, eyes and ears for the domination of the key terrain of the mind. He's talking about how we are constantly under the barrage of this world, these secular philosophies trying to come into our eyes, into our ears, trying to control what we think and how we think trying to constantly influence and, and how we respond and how we, believe, how we believe. And so he says, if you will, listen to God. But that's not just the only action step. Diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes. Listen to God. Do his will. He is saying it's not just a matter of knowing that this is what God said. It's a matter of doing what God says. And give ear to his commandments. That's idiom. Talking about to know his commandments, to listen, to hear, to follow. But then this last part, and keep all his statutes. In other words, keep his word. God comes into these people and he says, you want to know the difference between faith and fret. You want to know the difference between obedience and failure. You want to know the difference between calm and upheaval. You want to know the difference whenever the trial comes, the problems come, the circumstances come, and they will. You want to know about what makes a difference in our lives? Who we're listening to, who we're following, and whose words are we obeying. Those are the things that make a difference. Because brothers and sisters, when the time comes, and it will come, when you will find yourselves in a challenge, you will find yourself in a problem, you will find yourself in a circumstance, you will find yourself in a hardship, you will find yourself in a moment of crisis. When that time comes, the question is, is where are you going to turn? So he tells them, God tells them, if you will, and if you will do these four things, then what, Spence? Well, what does he say? What does God say? This is still in verse 26. I will. God says, if you will, then I will. Do what? I will. God says to Moses, to the people, I will. Put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Now you and I look at that and we're like, oh, well, that doesn't mean anything to us. Let's just try to think about it in the context of where we're at. He says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Now what is he talking about? Well, you chase that word down, diseases, and it means there in the context of the text, a malfunction that limited human function. I think that's so a neat definition. The idea that disease is not just what you get out of a manual. Disease is not just something that is created today or what people call the disease. A disease def defined here in the text is a malfunction that limited human function. So anything that God put upon them that kept them from doing what God wanted them to do. Are you tracking with me? So the idea that God says, I will do none of that stuff that I did the Egyptians to you. Now what did God do to the Egyptians? Remember? He took their water away, the gnats, the frogs, the flies, the hail, the darkness, the boils. 
All of these things that God brought upon the people. Why? Because the Egyptians rebelled against God. And all of these things had a, not only a spiritual effect, but all of them had a physical effect. And all of them had an effect to say, we want you to know who God is. God is not Pharaoh. God is not the Egyptians. God is God. And the Jews are God's chosen people. So he says, God is saying to them, if you will follow me, and if you will listen to me, then I won't do the things to you that I did to the Egyptians. Isn't that such great news? Isn't that such great news that you and I don't have to be here today thinking that we get all the same treatment as everybody else in the world? Isn't it such good news that God says, if you will, if you will follow and obey me, you can have a different future. You can have a different home. He tells us if we come and we believe in Jesus Christ and we give our hearts to the Lord and we are forgiven of our sins, we can have eternity in heaven. What a blessing it is that we knew, we realize and we know that the same wrath and the same judgment that God pours out upon the lost people will not be poured upon those who know him. Amen. So he says... He says, if you will do these four things, then I will treat you differently. I put in your notes. If you follow God, I will not afflict you. You see, there's some things that happen. And I'm not saying that everything, something, every time something bad happens to you, it's because of sin. Sometimes bad things happen because you live in a sinful world. Sometimes bad things happen because you live among sinful people. Sometimes bad things happen because we are in a broken world. At the same time, dumb decisions reap dumb prizes. I was so proud the other day. I looked at one of my children. And I said, talking about an accident, some type of thing that went wrong. And I said, well, what, what happened? He said, Daddy, I made dumb decisions. Yes. It wasn't someone else's fault. It wasn't someone else's responsibility. It wasn't poor, pitiful me. He recognized that it was a dumb decision that led to a dumb result. And yet, brothers and sisters, so many times we're in this world and we're convinced that it's someone else's problem. It's someone else's fault. We are innocent and we never do anything wrong. And the Bible tells us if you will follow God, God tells you that he will bless obedience. He will not afflict us and he will not oppress us. Does that mean that we'll have wealth and prosperity and ease of life and we won't ever be sick the rest of our days? No, 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 no. But it does tell us that when we get into those moments of life, either we can turn by faith in God or we can turn with fret to this world. And God says, if you will follow me, listen to me, do what I say, then you will see things in a different light. You will see things differently. You will have a different perspective. You will definitely have a different insight. And you will know that it's not God trying to be mean. It's just the fact of a fallen world. If you will, then I will. Now, some of us here this morning, we may say, well, that's a great thing. But how can God say that? How can God assure us of that? How can God make that kind of a promise? Think back to the restaurant. Kids are sitting there at the table. Kid looks at you and says, Dad, if I finish my food, will you get me ice cream? Well, yeah. I'm a nice dad. Everybody knows I'm just a pushover. Everybody knows I'm just a softy. So it's like, yeah, son, if you finish your food, I will get you ice cream. Now, you know what that child doesn't do? That child doesn't look at me and say, well, Daddy, how can you make that kind of claim? Well, Daddy, how can you make that kind of a statement? God, Daddy, how can you promise me that? No, because the child knows who I am in relation to 
him. So when God comes in and God says, if you will, in verse 25, then I will in verse 26, he follows it up by explaining why at the last part of verse 27. I am the Lord. Or as I put in your notes, for I am. God says, I can make this kind of statement. I can make this kind of a promise. I can make this kind of assertion because I know who I am. I am the Lord. Some of your Bibles may have it differently right there. Some of your Bibles may, have, may all be in capitals. It may be a, a larger capital L and a lower capital O-R-D. Sometimes you may have that. Sometimes you may have it written a little bit different than the typeset. But it's the idea of the proper name of God, the Yahweh. It is like God is saying, I know who I am. This is my proper name. This is my covenant name. This is who I am. And because of who I am, I can tell you what I will do based upon what you will do. And so he says, because I am the Lord, I can make this kind of statement. There's a lot of things and a lot of people that offer us promises. And there's a lot of false promises that don't come about. You look at a new vehicle and you think, oh, this new vehicle is going to solve all my problems. No, it's just going to give you different ones. Well, if I get this new tool, that will solve all my problems. No, it just you'll still have problems. Well, this new relationship, that'll solve all my problems. Or man, if the kids would just move out of the house, oh, my problems would be so farther and fewer between. If I just got a new job, oh, that would solve my problems. Well, if I just had more money. If I was just healed from this sickness or this ailment. If I could just go back in time in 20 years. Or we have all of these things to try to explain how our situation would be different. And God comes in and says, you know what? It's not a matter of your situation. It's not a matter of your place in life. It's not a matter of your possessions. It's a matter of your faith. And so many times, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves fretting over the things that we have no control over. And God is looking at us and going, why don't you just have faith that I can handle it? Why? Not because that he has been there before. No. Not because that he has owned it before. No. Not because that he has gone this way before. No. Not because he has all knowledge about that. No. Because he is the Lord. And so the Lord can make these kind of statements because of who he is and because he is the creator and because he is the sustainer and because of all of these things, he's able to look at them and say, you can have faith in me because no matter what you come up to, I've already been there and I already have an answer. And yet that fret, that fret, that fret, all we're doing is we're playing with that Rubik's Cube and we're just turning it and turning it and turning it and turning it and we never feel like we get anywhere. Ten years ago, and I meant to bring it with me, ten years ago you had the, the, the fidget spinner. It's a little triangle thing and you would sit in your fingers and, and all the kids and all the gas stations had it and all the kids just walking around. And us adults look at that kind of stuff and go, well, isn't that kind of childish? And yet us adults walk around with our own personal fidget spinners called social media and called the personal hobby and called our TV show that we watch on television or the things that we think we control or the things that we think we can have a handle on. And we're going around with our own little fidget spinners. We're just spinning and spinning and spinning and all this activity and we're not getting anywhere. So God, God, God says to Moses and he says to the people, if you will follow me, I will bless you. I will provide for you. I will take care of you. I will bring you through these things. I will do because I am the Lord. He says, I am the Lord, your healer. I find that 
interesting, the fact that he would just add that on there, your healer? Why would he put that? Why not just not say, I am the Lord? Why? Because he's teaching something about himself to the Israelites. He's teaching something about who he is. You were to look up that word healer, you would find that it means to rebuild or to repair or to mend or to stitch back together. And I find myself going, why would he describe himself that way? And then I thought to myself, just imagine where the Jewish people have been. They've been in bondage for over 430 years. For the last 430 years, for the next umpteen generations, they hadn't praised God, worshipped God, or followed God's direction for their life. They had been living in pagan idolatry. They had been living with pagan worship. They were far disconnected from God. They had no clue what it looked like to worship God authentically. They had no idea what it was like to serve God sacrificially. They had no clue what it was like to follow God by faith. Everything up to this point had been they were told what to do, when to do, how to do it. So now they find themselves with freedom. With freedom whether to follow or turn. With freedom whether to seek after God or to seek after this world. They found themselves in a moment they had to make a decision. And I can just imagine in my head that when God is using this description, he is saying, do you not understand that all of these broken fellowships and all these broken spiritual beliefs and all these broken spiritual practices, I will bring back together. I will redeem my people. I will restore my people. I will bring you back to me. Why? Because there's no one else that can do that. When Adam and Eve sinned into the garden and sin had entered into this world, and then following that, subsequent generations of people sinned against God and they rebelled against God. And the Bible teaches us that that sin then separates us from God and divides us away from God, and now we are chasm between us and God because of our sin. And all of these things are true and all of these things are real. And then we find ourselves going, well, how can that be restored? How can that be redeemed? And the answer that resounds through Scripture is you and I cannot do it. There's only one person that can restore us to himself, and that is God. So God there, because he loves us and because he so desires the redemption of his people and his creation, he sends his son to live on this earth to pay that debt and to pay that price so that you and I might be redeemed, you and I might be restored, you and I might have that proper fellowship and relationship with God. And the only person that could do that was God. You could not earn yourself to heaven. You could not earn your way to God. You could not restore yourself. You could not fix yourself. You are not the answer for your problems. The healer is. God is. It's as if God is looking at them in the text and saying, I am the Lord. I am the one that builds, repairs, mends, and stitches back together. And I am your only hope. We sang that not too many minutes ago. My living hope. My only hope. And when you find yourself in that moment and your faith is being tested, and fret is all around you, the question is, is where are you going to turn? 
Are you going to turn to fret? Are you going to turn to worry? Are you going to turn to anxiety? Or are you going to turn to God? And so right here in the middle of it, God says, hey, let's get this straight. You just got through the Red Sea. Now you're going to head down to Mount Sinai. There's going to become many times coming up where you will be tested, you will be challenged, and your faith will bring, be brought into question. So you need to get it straight now whether you are going to default to faith or whether you're going to default to And then you get down to verse 27. I talked about this a while back in the men's breakfast. But the irony of going from verse 25 and then being at Mara, bitter water, nothing to drink. And if they just practice faith in God, God had 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, a place for them to drink if they had just waited on God. Sometimes we find ourselves in seasons of life that we see the challenge, we know the challenge. And right before God, and God is testing us, and right before God is ready to reveal himself in our situation, we decide to move. And we don't wait for God to show himself. So then how do we apply all this? How do, how do we put all this into our lives? Well, three, three metrics we've been using. Build families, teach the Bible, be the church. So then how do we take this and then apply it to the three core values in the church? Well, I think um, that one of the ways that we do it when we talk about building families is to use God's rule, not the world's. To use God's rule and not the world. And where do I get this from? Well, you look back up there in verse 25. It says, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. Not about you, but sometimes I look at that and go, didn't he just repeat himself? Isn't that just the same thing that he said twice? No. And let me try to illustrate you the difference between a statute and a rule. Now, if you know anything about this, this is not a whooping stick. Not quite designed for whooping stick type material in my family. That would go away pretty fast. This is a yardstick. All right? Once upon a time... Ladies would use this primarily in sewing and seamstressing, and they would use this to measure. It was a straight edge, and it's marked off 36 inches. Now, this would be considered a statute. God says, this is the command. This is right from wrong. This is what God wants and what God doesn't want. This is the standard. So the way that we know what the measurement of one inch is is because we look at the statute. We look at the standard. Now, that is a statute, but then how does it become a rule? How it becomes a rule is, is when we take it and we say, well, how wide is this portion of the pulpit? So then we then take it and we apply it and we measure, we measure our lives by the standard of God's statutes. Are you following me? So when he says a statute and a rule, he is talking about this is God's will, this is God's word, this is God's command, but then the rule is then used on how we apply it to our lives. Now how does this trans transfer to where we're at in the text? Well, because there's a lot of people in this world today that will look at God's word and say, that's a great statute, but that has no relevancy to my life. This is God's word, but it has no effectiveness in my life. This is God's word, but it is not sufficient for where I'm at today. They will use God's word, and they will say it is a statute, it is a command, but they won't use it as a rule, a measurement, a means of ordaining their lives. Which means you can have families that come to church every single Sunday. The mom and dad walk in with the kids. 
They know when to stand up. They know when to sit down. The kids know what to do, when to do, how to do it. But because the statutes of God's word has never been applied to the home, we have young people growing up that know about God, but they don't know about God. And then we wonder why we have such a migration out of the church after they leave school. It's because they never were taught how to apply the statute of God as a rule of God for their daily lives. So the first thing we think about building families is we understand that we want to live and we want to build our families based upon the rule of God, not the rule of this world. The second thing when it comes to teaching the Bible is to understand that God has spoken. That God has spoken. Where has he spoken? He has spoken through the word. Hebrews 1 tells us he has spoken through the prophets. He's spoken to the people that come before us. God has spoken, and because he has spoken, he has something to say to you and I. So as Moses is sitting there, God is speaking to the people through Moses, and God is saying, hey, I've got instruction. I've got things that I want you to do. And this last one. Either we will depend or we will default. Either we will depend or we will default. Let me explain to you what I mean by this. Go back to Exodus chapter 14. The people are leaving Egypt. You can just imagine the, the joy. Ha ha, we're out of here. Ha ha, see ya. Ha ha. And they're just excited and they're going across the desert like, oh, we're headed to the promised land. And I can just imagine it kind of being like uh, Wizard of Oz and they're off to see the wizard, the wonderful Wizard of Oz. And you just imagine them getting all excited and getting all giddy. And here they go. And all of a sudden they get to the edge of the Red Sea. They're like, oh, look, a camp out, a cookout. We're just going to hang out here for a little while. And they're all excited. And then all of a sudden here comes Pharaoh. And it's like, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And that's all worry and fret and anxiety and all those things pops up. And God's like, hush, I got it. Good, God's, God's got it, God's got it. And they go across the Red Sea and they're just like, oh, oh, we don't know, we don't know. Fear, trepidation, all that stuff goes, goes along with it. And they get to the other side of the Red Sea and here comes the army of Pharaoh and they're just like, oh, oh, no, no. Here they're coming, they're coming after us. See, getting on the other side of the Red Sea didn't do it because here they come, here they come. And all of a sudden, whoosh, all the water goes over them. They watch them all drown. And they're all excited again. Oh, oh, see, hey, we got it all taken care of. Oh, yeah, see, told you, suckers, shouldn't have come after us. See, don't mess with us. God's on our side, and you can imagine all of the banner and all the trash talking going on, right? Well, <laughs> I can. <laughs> I can just imagine being one of those Israelites on the other side of the water, watching all that water drown those Egyptians going like, yeah, you got what you got coming. <laughs> Why it doesn't get it from nobody else. So, and then, and then Moses is like, all right, we're on the southern side of the Red Sea. Now it's on to Mount Sinai. You can imagine them having the, the wagons and everything else saying, Mount Sinai or bus. And here we go. We're going to take off. And you can go. And they get three days, and they find themselves going, water, water. We don't have any water. Oh, there's water. Oh, we can't drink that water. It's bitter. And then they, what do they do? They start losing their mind again. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh, one more, one more. And Moses is looking at them going, Hush. What were they doing? They were defaulting back to the only thing they knew. And that was what they could see with their eyes and touch with their hands. They were defaulting back to what they believed was true. And God said, from this point on, I want you to depend on me by faith. 
And church, what I'm telling you this morning, I think we are at a crossroads here in the life of the Jewish people, life of the Israelites people. We come to a bit of a crossroads here in the story in Exodus. And the question is, is will you, moving forward, choose to depend upon God or will you default back to the same old, same old of the past. And let me maybe bring this in to a modern day context in 2023. When you walk out of here, the problems are still outside. The opposition is still outside. The challenges are still outside. And when you and I walk outside, the question that is going to face us is will we depend upon God or will we default to history, what someone else did, what someone else says, what we've tried in the past? Will we depend or will we default? And right here in the text, God says to the Israelites through Moses, if you will, and I'm going to paraphrase, if you will depend upon me, I will see you through because I am your God. And maybe there's one of you in this room this morning that you, you just sit here to yourself and you say, Spence, I've got more fret than I can say grace over. Oh, I've got problems after problems after problems. In fact, I've got so many problems, my problems have problems. Maybe you're there this morning and you're saying, you know what, I've got so many things that I don't have answers for. I have more questions than I have answers. I have so many challenges. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to turn. And sometimes, sometimes it can feel like you're so overwhelmed that it just feels like the burden is a physical weight that you have a hard time breathing. This morning is the day that you just need to say, by faith, I'm going to trust in God. I'm not saying that it gets better. I'm not saying that all the problems go away. I'm trying to tell you this morning that God has a plan for you. When God comes to them in Exodus 15 and verse 26, and he says, if you will, I will, for I am. God already knew what was at Elam. God already knew what he had waiting for them. God already knew what was ahead of them if they would just depend upon so this morning, is your life marked more by faith or more by friend? You bow your heads with me.